if you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to the book of James. If you don't have a Bible, there's some on the back table there. Feel free to grab one. And if you're not sure where James is and you have one of those Bibles, it's on page 1115. James chapter 5. This is the penultimate sermon in our series in James. I use the word penultimate because you don't have many opportunities to use that word. Um, Second to last. So we will be in James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12, and then next Sunday, Lord willing, we will wrap up um, the book of James, those final verses. Uh, My kids, I think, would freely admit that they struggle with patience when people are coming over to our house. Probably, right? Whether it's uh, grandparents or families or just the cable guy, uh, they want to know when people are going to arrive, how much longer it's going to be till they arrive, why they haven't arrived when I told them that they would be here 10 minutes ago. All of these things they struggle with. In that waiting, they struggle with with patience. And I think we all do. It's not just my kids, right? I mean, we all struggle with patience to one degree or another, uh, waiting for things that we know are going to happen. We know that they're going to happen at some point. We just are impatient about when they're going to happen. And we live in this age of instant gratification. We have these phones, right, where we can get anything on them as fast as we want. And I was thinking about that, and I was reminded of, of of this sound as I thought about patience. You ready? Be patient and wait for it. just to get on the internet, right? You didn't even download anything at that point. If you did, it it took you forever, and usually someone picked up the phone and then you lost whatever you were trying to download. Of course, now, you know, we can get everything so quickly, and patience is, is difficult. Patience is a gift. It's a gift of the Spirit that all of us need, and James here is calling us to patience, not patience with the internet, and not even really patience with other people. But rather, patience as we wait for the coming of the Lord. Let me just, let's, let's read uh, James 5, verses 7 through 12. And look for that idea here. James 5, beginning in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes, and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. I hope it's clear that the the key command of this passage right off the bat is be patient. And the context for that command is patience about the coming of the Lord, patience about the Lord's return. 
Now, uh, James, again, is always stair-stepping. He's connecting different things, and sometimes it's hard to see the connection. But I think the, the connection to the previous passage about the rich is this theme of the, the coming of the Lord. So verses 1 to 6, James was focusing on exposing the sins that the rich are fall into. And throughout those verses, you remember there are all these strong warnings about uh, the coming judgment of God. I don't know if you remember that. He kept talking about how we need to be aware of, of the sins that we can fall into because the Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. He's coming as a judge. And so here, after talking about the sins of the rich, James in, in verse 7 says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. As I read that, I thought about how last week I said verses 1 through 6 could possibly be Christian believers in the church who were Wealthy. I still think that the instructions and the warnings of the sins that, that come from riches apply to us. But verse 7, as I was thinking about it, makes me wonder if James, in verses 1 through 6, was specifically talking about the non-Christian rich who were oppressing the poor that were in the church. And the, the severity of those judgments makes us think that. But I also think verses 7 through 12 would, would maybe confirm that. Let me try to make the connection, and then we'll, we'll move on from here. But... Obviously, he's transitioning. He uses the term brothers, so brothers and sisters, four times in those verses, 7 through 12. So he's now talking to the church, and he's calling the church uh, to not simply be patient, but to be patient in the midst of suffering. That's clear in, in verse 10 as an example of suffering and patience, brothers. And what is the cause of the suffering that these Christians are facing? At least in part, the, the suffering that they're facing finds its source in the rich who were oppressing and persecuting them. Oppressing and persecuting them just as they had oppressed and persecuted, and persecuted Jesus, the righteous one we saw. So James also addresses this in chapter 2. He's talking about partiality in chapter 2, verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So it would seem here that, that the believers that James is writing to are being called to patience in light of present suffering. And that suffering is caused in some sense by the rich and the powerful that are in this world system. Now, that persecution is, is not just for them, but it's something that we all still face in this world, some places more than others, but all to some extent. Uh, those with, with worldly goods and influence are often the ones who oppress and seek to silence the followers of Jesus. The ungodly are the ones who prosper in this world, and those walking uh, with Jesus down the, the path of suffering and pain in the present feel the persecution that could come from others. The world is, is filled with difficulty, and the church will often find that it is opposed, and it is ostracized, it is ridiculed, it's rejected, it's mocked, it's caricatured, it's pushed out by the world, by those with power, influence, money, by the rich. And the question is, how do we respond in the midst of that? How do we respond to the persecution and the trials and the difficulties that come from being just a follower of Christ? I think we could be tempted to just sort of wallow and feel like victims. Uh, we could also just seek to play their game, get comparable power, maybe through money or, or poli political power or social status. 
Sadly, the church has often looked to the ways of the world to uh, when difficulty comes. We've seen that. Sometimes we just sort of try to blend in. We want to walk down the path of Jesus, but not really look like we're walking down the path of Jesus so that we don't feel persecution and, and ridicule. But James calls his readers, and he calls each of us who follow Jesus, not to any of those, but he calls us to, to patience. Patience in present suffering in light of the future glory that will come. Here's what his call is, I think, to us. In light of Christ's coming, be patient in present suffering. That's the simple command, I think, of these verses. In light of Christ's coming, in, in light of the fact that Jesus will return, be patient in the present suffering and difficulty that you face. So Jesus assures us that we are going to have trouble in this world. And he says, listen, if they persecuted me, and you're a follower of me, then they're going to persecute you. So how do we respond in the midst of suffering? What's going to give us hope and strength to, to endure when there is trouble and when there is pressure that comes from outside of the church? How can we as believers, those who are, are looking for Christ's return, find joy when the wicked not only seem to prosper, but then use their prosperity to oppress the followers of Christ? James' solution is, be patient. Be patient, guys. The Lord is coming. In light of Christ's coming, be patient in present suffering. Well, that, we can just close right there, right? How, how can we be patient? How, how do we patiently wait? What's the source of that patience? Those are the kind of questions I think James is going to answer for us. Then I, I want to give you four thoughts about this, this big idea of, in the light of Christ's coming, be patient in present suffering. So, so James is going to call us to a few different things. And so the, the first thing that we see in verses 7 through 8 is James says, patiently wait, trusting that the Lord will certainly come. Keyword, certainly. <laughs> patiently wait, trusting. Trusting what? That the Lord will certainly come. So this patience that we're called to is not some pointless patience. It's not a, a worthless waiting because the Lord will most certainly come. And we can trust that in the midst of all of our struggles and difficulties that Jesus is going to return. And he's going to establish justice and righteousness and peace on earth and peace in our hearts. That's encouraging because I think in the everyday challenges and trials that come at us, there's this temptation to just sort of throw our hands up and say, life is totally pointless. <laughs> you know, we begin to feel like our, our days are some sort of strange, sadistic cycle, and that there's really no point, there's no goal, there's no purpose, there's no ultimate end uh, to what we're doing, or ultimate end to the world itself. The businessman goes to work every day, and he's just working for the weekend, and his only goal is to get to the weekend, but then Monday comes up on his calendar over and over and over again. Or maybe there's a, a mother who feeds her children, and then feeds them again, and then feeds them again, and then goes to the grocery store for two hours, only to come home and drop the eggs in the driveway and forget the milk in the front seat until the next morning, and it's all gone. And it just, you know, you wonder, what in the world? Is this some sort of cruel trick? Or maybe you, you, you clock in at the start of each day, and you clock out at the end of each day, which gives you enough time to get some food, to get maybe a little bit of sleep, and then to fill up your tank so that you have enough gas in your car to get back to work so that you can 
clock back in and work some more and your to-do list never seems like it's going to end and the bills somehow they just keep coming into your mailbox and meanwhile some joker on the other side of town is making tons of money and cares nothing about christ and nothing about the gospel and he's living it up in comfort and ease and we say who's in charge of this whole thing and what is the point of all of this and why does it feel so hard sometimes and then between all that, all of our own mundane tasks of life, we have to watch the news and we hear about racism and we hear about riots and persecution and poverty and domestic violence of the triumph of a culture that's marked by sin, that's marked by death. And if my own struggles weren't, I, weren't, didn't make me, you know, weren't strong enough to hold me down, I have to drink down all the doctrines of the world at large that are opposed to what I believe as a follower of Jesus and, you know, just gets hard sometimes and life feels like you're on some sort of carousel and it was kind of fun at first and and now you're ready to get off and it's like there's some carny that keeps speeding it up and you're going faster and faster and it's shaking and you think it's all going to fall apart and you say i don't like this anymore james calmly steps in to the swirl of our lives and he says be patient and i say patient what are you talking about? Why? Is that really what you want me to do? Yes, be patient. And he talks about this ultimate reality. And he reminds us that life is not some sadistic carousel. It doesn't, it's, not, it's not cyclical, but actually there is an ultimate end. There is this purpose and goal, not just for our lives, but for all of history. He tells us to be patient. Patient when? Until the coming of the Lord. Because the Lord is coming. I forget that sometimes. So James says to us, brothers and sisters, he says, look up. <laughs> In the midst of the, the mud and the muck of, of life, hear this truth, he says, the Lord is coming. He's coming and he's going to set everything right. He's coming, he's going to, to reign on the earth, and he's going to fill the earth with his glory as the waters cover the sea. He's going to come, and he's going to take us to himself for all time. So patiently wait, trusting something, that he will most certainly come. We can be as sure of Christ's return as the farmer is that his crops are going to show up. You know, what a faith-infused profession farming is. I think that's why it shows up so much in the Bible and why James uses it here. You know, planting time, the farmer takes the seeds and he buries them in the dirt, hidden from view. And there they, they are going to sit. And the farmer waits. The farmer doesn't wake up the day after planting and go out and dig in the mounds of dirt and say, are they doing anything in there? No, he has to wait, trusting that this tiny seed contains everything that is necessary for the crop. And so he waits, not just for the seed, he waits for the rain. And sometimes the rain takes way longer than it should, but then it comes. The early rain comes, establish the crop, establishes the crop, the late rain comes, and, and the crop flourishes. And these are rains that the farmer can do nothing to bring. He can't do anything about it, unless he's got one of those big irrigation systems. But don't think about this. He, the, he can do nothing about the rain. He can't do anything. He has to trust that these rains are going to come. And with the rain comes the crop, and, and the wise farmer doesn't waste time worrying. There's no point to that, because he knows that the seed's in there, and he knows that the rains are going to come, and he knows that he will have a crop, and he is 
patient. And we are called to be patient. We're called to trust that the Lord will indeed come. Just like the crop, just like the rain. How strange is it that we are more confident in our arrogant plans about the future, like the guy in chapter 4, than we are about God's promises about the future. (laughs) We think that we know what's going to happen, but we somehow doubt God's plans. Oh, we have little faith. How impatient we are. How prideful. More confident in our own words and our own plans than God's. So this command in verse 8 then sounds loudly in our ears. I love the command. You also be patient. And then he says this. Establish your hearts. Great phrase. Establish your hearts. Don't don't let your heart be tossed by the waves of life. Don't be double-minded. This is a James theme. Plant your heart firmly in the reality that the coming of the Lord is at hand. That's what he says. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. It's, it's going to happen. I mean, it's, it's soon. It's always soon. It's always on the cusp of happening. And when difficulties come, we can rest in the certainty that he will return. He is, he is coming. And when people mock us, and that's what Second Peter 3 tells us that they're going to do. They're going to say, where's the promise of his coming? It's been like 2,000 years since he said he was coming back. Where is he? Then we can rest. We can rest in the sovereignty of the, the king of the future. What's 2,000 years to the Lord? That's what Peter says. A day with the Lord is like 1,000 years. 1,000 years is like one day. Establish your hearts. Establish your hearts in who God is and that his word is certain. It's even more certain than seeds and, and rain. It's as, as sure as he came once to save us, he will come again. As sure as he rose from the dead, he's going to come again. Establish your hearts, brothers and sisters. Establish your heart in the words of the angel to the disciples. Remember when they were staring up in the sky with their jaws open, shielding their eyes from the sun, just like all of us were doing on Monday, except they didn't have special glasses or cereal boxes. And they were looking up in the sky, and the angel speaks a reality to them and to us that is true. And it's, it's as constant as, as the sun. It's as constant as the, the moon. And he says, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way. Isn't that good? So we wait. We patiently wait, trusting that the Lord will certainly come. Establish your hearts that he will certainly come. And as we wait, we are, we are to wait patiently, knowing, trusting the certainty of his return. But also, James then says, patiently wait Avoiding conflict with one another. And he goes right to the interpersonal. This beautiful truth. He will certainly come. It's going to happen. Then he says, and knowing that, stop fighting. <laughs> Avoid conflict with one another. The coming of the Lord is a reality that fills us with joy, but there's a soberness that comes with, with the reality of his return because he comes not just as a father together, his children, but also as a judge that is going to bring justice. If we forget this, we become like the guy in the parable that Jesus talked about who was given the one talent. And instead of using it while his master was away, he buried it. He was, he was sure that his master was coming back. He knew a little bit about his master's character. But he didn't reckon with the fact that his master was going to judge him too. And we also have to remember that, yes, 
Christ will return and receive us to himself. But he comes as a judge for all in one sense or another. Here's the great confidence we have as followers of Jesus. Our hope is that the that, that in light of the coming judgment of God is that, that Christ has paid the penalty for our sin. That ultimate judgment is, is not a threat that we have to face if we have come to faith. So Jesus took the whole wrath of God for us on Good Friday so that we don't have to fear the wrath of God on the last day. And Jesus then gives us, he imputes, he fills us with his righteousness so that we will stand before God, the judge, in one way, in, in this amazing way, we will stand before God on judgment day guiltless because of the righteousness of Christ. So we can have hope. God is coming as a judge, for sure. But we can have confidence because of the good news of the gospel, the promise of salvation through faith in the finished work of Christ, that we will not face ultimate final judgment. So we will not be judged if we have put our faith in Christ eternally for our sins. But we will in some way be judged for how we have used or squandered the opportunities and the talents and the gifts that we've been given. And James here points out that while we wait, we can become impatient. And in that impatience, we can it's not just impatience with the Lord, but it overflows into impatience with one another especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. We will be held accountable for our actions and our words against one another. If you've been with us throughout the study of James, it's not surprising that he goes to this call to love our neighbor. That's where he's always going. His concern is always that we would be loving one another. And it makes sense, too, as we wait, especially if we're, if we're struggling with suffering and pain and difficulty in life, then we are prone to get frustrated with one another. We take out our frustrations with life, uh, with our own life, with ourselves. <laughs> we take all that frustration out on other people. And James says, don't do that, brothers and sisters. Don't, don't argue, don't fight as we're waiting for this coming of the Lord. I used the Beatles to say that they got it wrong last week. The Beatles got it right in this. They said life is short, and life is very short, and there's no time for fussing and fighting, my friend. <laughs> That's totally true. And it's not just the fact that life is short, but the reality of Christ's return means that, that grumbling against one another is going to have eternal consequences. The fighting and the grumbling that happens amongst brothers and sisters in Christ is not something that just sort of happens here and then has no echoes into eternity. James says that we will be judged in some sense for the way that we are bickering and fighting amongst one another. Of course, like I said, usually fighting has more has less to do with what someone else has done to us and more to do with what's going on in our own hearts, our own disappointments, our own frustrations. Again, what does James say? The, the fights and the quarrels that are among you, where do they come from? They come from within you, from your own desires that are waging war in yourself. And the stress of life causes uh, sinful desires to create conflict. And James says, hey, be patient, okay? The Lord is coming. So don't waste time fighting with one another because he's coming as a judge and he comes at any moment. He says he's standing at the door. He's got that picture of how I stand at the door sometimes, just listening. What's going to what's going on in this kid's room? <laughs> they were just fighting. Are they going to fight again? If I walk through the door, what will I see? 
And God, in some sense, is always standing at the door. He's always waiting. What, what will happen? And he might find us fighting with our brothers and sisters when he walks through the door. Boy, I don't want that. <laughs> I don't want to be caught fighting on the last day. James says, don't mess with that stuff. It calls us to patience, to confidently trust that Christ certainly will return, to avoid grumbling in light of the fact that God is coming as a judge. And then James turns to the prophets and he turns to Job as examples and he says, patiently wait, trusting that the Lord is merciful and compassionate. As we wait, we are trusting, we're trusting that he certainly will come. We're avoiding conflict. And third, we're trusting that the Lord is merciful and compassionate. James first turned our eyes to the farmer in verses 10 and 11. He calls us to look to the prophets. Look at verses 10 and 11. I'll remind you since it's been a bit since we read it. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. You have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. There's a lot that we can learn from the prophets. But specifically, James wants us to see them as examples of suffering and patience, of, of standing forth as countercultural voices for truth in a culture that would see that proclamation as a reason to persecute you or make fun of you or malign you. That's what the prophets represent to us. We have a lot to learn from the prophets, and if we are honest with ourselves, we really don't know enough about the prophets to learn from them. Um, so James indirectly is saying to us in this, don't neglect reading the prophets. There's value in reading these Old Testament prophets. We have a lot to learn from them. So James says, take the prophets. And if you're unfamiliar with the prophets, maybe you should read the prophets. Uh, I tried to find a good reading plan that I could give you for reading through the prophets. Um, there's a great one on version, from what I can tell, but nothing I can print, which probably makes sense in our digital age. So if you have version, you can get a reading plan and read straight through the major prophets and straight through the minor prophets. If reading the prophets scares you, I printed, I don't know if on that back table, I think they are, a guide about how to read the major prophets devotionally. Because you get lost in those sometimes. Just a few hints about as you're reading those major prophets, Isaiah, huge, Ezekiel, huge, Jeremiah. I mean, these are big books. You can get lost in the weeds. How do I read that? So I commend to you, if you're in between reading plans or just wanting to start on something, read the prophets. James tells us to take the prophets. And as we read the prophets, James says that we can look at them as examples of something specific, of suffering and patience. Hmm. The thought of being a prophet, I think, a voice for God's truth, that could sound exciting, you know? Maybe you imagine some sort of praise or some sort of uh, position in life. Isaiah responded in that passage in, in Isaiah 6 to the call to, to be a voice for God, to be God's mouthpiece. And if he was optimistic about what his profession would be like, the, the Lord brings him back to reality in Isaiah 6. He says to Isaiah, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Sounds like a great crowd to preach to, you know? Everyone's asleep, everyone's deaf, everyone's blind. No one's listening to you. So, folks weren't going to listen to Isaiah. Isaiah says, 
how long? <laughs> how long is this going to last? How long is it going to be like this? And the Lord says, until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes his people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. So a long time. Your whole career. And Isaiah doesn't respond by saying, I'm not here anymore, Lord, don't send me. Uh, he sticks to the call. Suffering, patience. Jeremiah was rejected by his own people, driven into exile with them. Ezekiel was asked to do seemingly crazy things to communicate to people who didn't want to hear a word that he said. Stephen says of the prophets in Acts 7.52, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Assumed answer, none of them. They persecuted all of the prophets. And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, Jesus, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. The great prophet, the final prophet, Jesus himself, is rejected. And what about Job? Not just the prophets, Job is brought in. Oh, the, the patience of Job in the midst of suffering. It's so remarkable that if someone is really patient, what do we say? You have the patience of Job. He's the most patient man, the poster child for patience. And you remember the story, how nearly everything is ripped from his life, his family, his health, his wealth. And he kneels in the dust, and he says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's another voice. It's another witness to listen to. Another scripture that we would do well to read through. It's encouraging because Job was not perfect. You can read through that and be encouraged that you can be a person who is known for patience and not be perfectly patient. Because Job said some foolish things. But James tells us that he trusted in the purpose of the Lord and that all of God's purposes are surrounded by his compassion. That Job's story reveals the truth that God is merciful, even in the midst of suffering. I think that's the key. If we're going to wait patiently for the Lord in the midst of suffering, then we have to trust that God has a purpose and that his purposes are always filtered through his mercy and his compassion. He's doing something, and, and as he's doing it, he is always merciful, always compassionate. compassionate. And so, so we struggle, and we wonder, what, what are you doing, God? What are the purposes here? We can trust that he's merciful and that he is compassionate. I think in light of the return of the Lord, the mercy and the compassion of God are astounding because remember the mockers where I mentioned them in, in 2 Peter 3 if we go back there you can read 2 Peter 3 uh, this afternoon but the mockers show up again and, and part of what they're saying is it's been so long since he's since he's been gone is he ever going to return and they mock and they say there's no way that Christ is returning and Peter says that the long wait is not rooted in laziness it's not rooted in forgetfulness but it's rooted in mercy and compassion. Because, why does God tarry his return? Why is it taking so long? Because the Father wants everyone to come to repentance. For all to see that he is the Savior before they would meet him as the judge. The kind and compassionate God. Let me say, you may be here as someone who has yet to choose to follow Jesus down the road of present suffering that leads to future joy. And you could mock in your mind the idea that this Jesus who's been gone for 2,000 years is going to come back. You say, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. 
But let me say to you, oh, the grace of God, that the thing that you are mocking is in fact an evidence of God's mercy and compassion to you. So I would boldly say to you, as we've said throughout this series, talk no more so very proudly. (laughs) Don't mock God. In faith, humble yourself before his compassion. Receive his mercy. He longs to see you turn from sin. See you turn to Jesus for salvation, to be found in him on the last day, because he will most certainly come. So we patiently wait with confidence, without fighting, trusting in God's merciful and gracious heart. And finally, verse 12, patiently wait with humility in our hearts. Patiently wait with humility in our hearts. Just a side note, interesting that the two... The don't grumble and this idea about humility both have to do with our mouth again, that our sins are exposed through our mouth. James seems to be really harping on that. But look at verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now this is the verse that I struggled to connect. Why in the world did James put this here? What is the point? We initially read it and we think this is about integrity about a person who is reliable. So, so swearing is unnecessary because we do what we say. Uh, we are people of our word. And that, that's a good thing, right? <laughs> that, of course, that, that's right. In some way, I think that could be what this verse is saying. Be a person of integrity who does what he says, just as the Lord is going to do what he said he will do. Be a woman who keeps her word, just as the Lord keeps his word to us, and he will return. But as I read it more, I wondered if this is less about integrity and more about humility. I I was studying this passage in a coffee shop, and I overheard a woman saying to her phone, I swear to God I will be there. And it just pricked in my ear reading this passage. I swear to God I will be there. I have no idea where she was going. I, I don't know her at all. I don't know if she's an unreliable person. And she never shows up, and so she makes promises and doesn't keep them. Uh, And so no one believes her, and she has to add these words to everything, or else everyone thinks she's not going to show up. Uh, I don't know if she even believes in God. I don't know if she made good on her promise. Did she make it? In fact, that's what came to my mind when she said it. What pride we have when we swear that we're going to do something. We swear by heaven. We swear by God himself. We swear by anything that we're going to do something. What what crazy misplaced confidence. That's foolishness. It doesn't reckon with, with traffic jams. It doesn't reckon with flat tires. It doesn't reckon with death itself that could come at any moment. It doesn't reckon with Christ who could come at any moment. God alone can swear by himself because he alone is the sovereign Lord. I swear to God I will be there. That's prideful, it's arrogant, and it's a foolish thing to say. Now the reason I think it has to do with humility in part is because Matthew 5 carries the same idea, and James is so much a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, that that's what I think Jesus is saying. So Jesus says in Matthew 5, Again, you have heard it said, that that it was said of those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this 
comes from evil. I think Jesus is saying you can't do anything in your own strength, so why in the world would you think that you can invoke things beyond your own self? You can't even control the hairs on your head. How could you control anything else? Why would you swear by things that you can't control? So let your yes be yes and your no, no, because you don't have any power to swear by anything. Again, I don't think it's as much about integrity as it is about humility, rejecting the pride that says we're able to swear by anything that something is going to come to pass. We have, we don't have that kind of control. We don't have that kind of control, even of our own actions in light of God's rule and his orchestration of his events in this world. So don't swear by anything. Just be a person of integrity. But more than that, be a person of humility who recognizes how weak he or she is, how little we know about the future, how little we really know what's going to happen. I don't know many things. (laughs) But you and I, what we can know for sure about the future is this. I know, based on God's word, that he is the Lord and that he is full of compassion and mercy and that he will most certainly return. He's going to come as a father to gather his children. He's going to come as the judge of the entire world. And as I think about that right now, I am filled with patience. I I hope you're filled with patience in that thought. We don't have to be riled up by what's happening around us, and we don't have to be riled up by what's happening inside us. We don't need to be anxious. We don't need to worry. Be patient. He will come. We don't need to be fearful. He has a purpose. We can rest in His compassion and His mercy. The world at this very moment is currently spinning at close to 1,000 miles per hour. And we are going around the sun. Our orbit is right around 70,000 miles per hour. And yours and my life sometimes feels like it's going a million miles a second. And so I would invite you right now to close your eyes with me to bow your head in humility before the God who was the God who is the God who is to come and let's take a moment of silence and patiently rest with me in this silence in this truth the Lord is coming and all will be well